Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Seidel, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, July 25th, 2021. Meet the Press was usurped by the the Olympics, Olympics, which makes sense. That's probably going to happen on NBC. But we had four other shows that we looked at that covered a wide range of topics. That's right. I took a look at Face the Nation and I looked at State of the Union this week. And I looked at Fox News Sunday and this week. So let's dive straight in because there's, um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. Why don't you tell me, Naomi, what was questionable for you today? Sorry, the label says questionable, but it's actually quality. See, I thought you had told me you had a quality. So <laughs> I was a little, I was like, well, I'm just going to go with what it says here on the agenda. Yeah, so it's actually a quality moment that I saw on this week. It was a moment on the panel. Now, this week was hosted by George Stephanopoulos. So surprise, surprise to no one. Rahm Emanuel and Chris Christie were on the panel. But there were some other voices as well, including Margaret Claire Hoover. She's actually an American conservative political commentator and strategist and media personality. Apparently, she's also the great granddaughter of Herbert Hoover. Whoa. Yeah, that was kind of crazy. I don't really know much about her. She has some book out for about American individualism and kind of like young Republicans. But that's not the point. There was a conversation on the panel more broadly about vaccine mandates and whether or not they're required or what can be done to push parts of the country where there's low vaccination rates. And she had a good idea. Take a listen. That guy's child goes to kindergarten. That guy has to present an immunization card that shows that his child is vaccinated. So you know what? If we just made it really just almost impossible, if you're going to get government provided health care, if you're getting VA treatment, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, anything and Social Security obviously isn't health care, you should be getting the vaccine. Okay, because you're going to have to we're we are going to have to take care of you on the back end. So there are a lot of things we can do without calling it a mandate. But to just make it almost impossible for people to to live their lives without being protected and protecting the rest of us. Now, I love this idea of different ways of getting people to get vaccinated. Of course, we should be doing everything to encourage individual people to make that choice for themselves. But institutions, organizations, companies like institutions matter and they have influence and and, and privilege and power, <laughs> to yeah, be honest. absolutely. And Brendan, about a week or so ago, you shared with me a Twitter thread by Bill Kristol, another Republican, about different ways that the federal government can use its power to encourage more people to get vaccinated, including making a mandate in the military, which still has not been yeah, done. Yeah, absolutely, which is crazy, because they mandate other vaccines. Mandate a lot of other things of our service members. And, you know, different ways that you can kind of get hospitals to do it within their own, you know, workplaces. And so, you know, I've seen locally here the UC, so the University of California system is now requiring faculty and students to be vaccinated to go to campus this fall. I'm like, yes, we have to like 
combat disinformation and blah, 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 and convincing individuals to get vaccinated. But that's moving too slowly. Yes, it is. And we need to look at other levers of power. And so I really appreciated Margaret Hoover talking about this. It's frankly way overdue on the Sunday news shows. I totally agree. And in fact, pretty much most of what I'm talking about is going to be kind of like nodding towards this. Oh, interesting. And those ideas. So fabulous. Okay, I'm all about it. Good, because my shows didn't talk too much about it. So that's wonderful. Well, I'm not necessarily saying that they did, but they should (laughs) have. That's you'll see a little bit more makes <laughs> that makes more sense brendan do you have a quality or questionable yeah i've got a quality moment it came at the end of face the nation once again hosted by our dear friend john dickerson our old host of the show and he had like he often did his little book segment but these book segments while he's been filling in for margaret brennan have been way more relevant i feel like than they were in the past And in this one, he had Carol Leonig and Phil Rucker. They are the authors of a new book called I Alone Can Fix It, where they did tons of deep, deep, deep reporting about the Trump presidency, kind of like one of these early look back books as Trump has completed his term as president. And this was a fascinating conversation. I really appreciated the insights I didn't appreciate how short it was because they had a lot more to say, but hey, it's a packed episode, right? I wanted to bring to your attention and raise to the level of highlight two interesting exchanges that really are things we should be talking about now and should have talked about earlier. Carol, um, let's start with you. Your first book ended after the first impeachment. The second book has another impeachment. Um, Is there a through line for President Trump's administration between those two impeachments? Absolutely there is, John. What's striking about that time frame is the president learns as a result of the first impeachment that he's untouchable. There's no consequence for his behavior. There's no consequence for stretching the law, bending it, breaking it. Um, You know, in a criminal situation, if he weren't president, there are are a lot of people who would argue he violated the law the first time around and as well the second time around. So as he becomes more emboldened, he rejects the advice of experts. He's the expert now. He rejects the the suggestions of his closest advisors if it's not what he wants because he knows best in his mind. Unfortunately, in 2020, it's no longer a PR spin game. You know, it is actually a a crisis that puts all of us at risk and American lives um, are lost as a result. So we learned exactly the wrong lesson before the pandemic. Absolutely. Good for John Dickerson kind of underscoring that point in that first clip there. Uh, Here is the second one. So what was the governing principle of, what was the principle that drove Donald Trump? It's really simple. The principle was how do I better myself and how do I better my political fortunes? That's what Trump talked about and thought about every minute of every day in making decisions throughout the four years of the presidency, but especially in this final year, as a crisis hit the American people, the pandemic, the economic crisis, the racial justice crisis, he thought every single moment of that time how do I look better for November 3rd for the election? And he set aside the other concerns. And that's what was really troubling to the people who served him and confided this in us. So I find both of these points really illuminating. 
if you remember around the time of that first impeachment, there was talk and fear, an impeachment of Donald Trump that didn't really have a chance of actually removing him from power would ultimately embolden him. Remember that those conversations, Naomi? I do, yeah. And a lot of Democrats who were pursuing that impeachment said, look, it doesn't matter. It is our duty to present the facts and try to hold him accountable. And if people choose, you know, Republicans or others choose not to vote to impeach him, that is on them. But it is our responsibility to do the investigation, present it to the American people and our colleagues and see where the chips fall. And yet it seems like those who had fears about Trump being emboldened were 100% correct. Trump was emboldened. And it's an interesting instance, I think, of people saying, look, the principle and the morality of it demands that we pursue this to the fullest extent that we can, you know, this impeachment. And yet the pragmatist would say, what's the end result? Is it really going to be a good thing or not? Right. And clearly it was not a good thing. Very, very interesting to kind of have this reporting that confirms that that issue and kind of buttons it up for us so we know okay here's what the ultimate reality was the final point the the clip that we heard there i feel like early other at other moments in this interview phil philip rucker says you know i wish i knew this before or i if i if we knew this before we would have reported it but you know this idea of trump putting himself first how do i better myself how do i better my political fortunes you know is it really true that we didn't know that about trump is it really true like if i was to make this a questionable it would be because my question is why haven't we asked every single person who supports trump you know why hasn't it been a bigger headline how can you support a person like trump who cares only about themselves. I feel like that's the biggest scandal of the Trump presidency. Like, a president who is selfish above and beyond all measure of caring for the citizens of the country. Like, did nobody know this at the time? And if they did, why wasn't it a bigger scandal? Like, maybe it's because reporters feel like selfishness is expected from politicians, that all politicians are looking out for themselves ultimately or in some way. But to be so craven, so devoid of care for anyone else... It just seems like that should have really led headlines. And it's like, this isn't about policy. This isn't about even necessarily, you know, party positions or beliefs. It's about putting someone in power and supporting someone in power who only cares about themselves. And I would love for more questions to be to Republican politicians and Republican voters and conservative voters and crossover voters and anybody who chooses to get behind Donald Trump to ask them, do you genuinely believe Donald Trump supports anyone beyond himself, right? How can you support somebody like that? How can you empower somebody like that? And to what end, right? Clearly, the end is only his own power, his own gain, his own good, you know, good fortune, right? That's all he is motivated by. You know, these people writing this book, these aren't democratic establishment voices. These are reporters. And they're putting it on the table and saying, look, this is just the fact, right? We don't have it out for Trump. We're just saying this is who he is. This is what he was motivated by. We have ample evidence of it. So why isn't this the conversation? Why aren't we talking about this? Let's not dance around it anymore. And I am heartened by the fact that these conversations are being had. 
these voices are out there. Reporters are saying, this is just the fact. These are the facts, right? And I hope that that is how the conversation is shaped, that we're not just assuming, oh, you know, he's just the quote-unquote party bearer, right? That's a term that we hear sometimes. Oh, this person is the Republican party bearer. He bears the party on his shoulders. And it's like, no. It doesn't have to be that way. It's all about himself. And we need to recognize that. Yeah. And, you know, this book just came out. And so similarly as to how we've seen with other kind of expose of the Trump administration books, there's going to be new details that come out or details that people are responding to. And so I'm kind of curious as to how people are going to explain this or kind of talk about this some more and what other parts of the book become important chatter. Yeah, I agree. But I hope they don't miss the big picture, which is what we got here, right? It's not just about the granular things. And that's what I liked about Dickerson's questions. It's like, who is this person? What guides them? Because he wants to be president again. Right. Okay, Naomi, so what's your big topic of discussion you'd like to focus on this week? So I want to look at how the shows talked about the January 6th investigation. Right now, there's going to be a select committee investigating what led up to the January 6th insurrection. Again, I looked at Fox News Sunday and This Week, and what stood out to me was just how different this would be if it was on Meet the Press. Mm. And thinking in particular how much I would have appreciated a token Chuck Todd explainer or timeline of events. Mm, Interesting. So that was missing from those other ones. They were missing. And like the questions that were asked without that context lose any weight or bearing, essentially. Specifically, all the crazy craziness of minority leader Kevin McCarthy in trying to stall or or even torpedo previous attempt of a truly bipartisan investigation. I kind of did some quick research. There's a really great explainer on Vox right now about what the last few months have been like trying to create a body, investigative body to look into this. And just for our listeners sake, so in May, and and I'll add the link of this article that kind of really summarized this really well in our show notes. But in May, essentially the top Democrat and Republican from the House Homeland Security Committee, right? So the ranking members, which were Representative Bernie Thompson and John Katko, they came up with kind of like a negotiation for a January 6th committee to investigate it. It had everything that Kevin McCarthy wanted, which was equal representation of both parties and Republican veto power over the subpoenas. But McCarthy decided actually to completely renege on that deal because he thought the scope was too narrow and he essentially wanted to look into interrelated political violence, which is like, quote unquote, Black Lives Matter and Antifa stuff, which has nothing to do with January 6th, right? And he just randomly decided this is now another thing that I want. Right. I mean, it's an excuse, right? right? It's an excuse not to allow this body to continue. So despite McCarthy's opposition to the thompson Catco bill, or deal, I should say, because it's just a kind of a body, not a bill, legislation was drafted to kind of set up an independent commission. 
and it was passed by the House with 35 Republicans, but it was blocked in the Senate because of Republicans using their first filibuster. Another example of like Senate insanity. So because that second attempt fails, Pelosi's like, fine. She creates an independent commission with eight Democratic appointees and five Republican ones, with Pelosi being able to have veto power for those members that McCarthy appoints. And one of those five was actually going to be, or and is, Republican Liz Cheney from Wyoming. So this is attempt number three to create a body to investigate an insurrection on the Capitol. McCarthy appoints the remaining Republicans, two of them, specifically Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, like never had any faith in any investigation that was going to happen on January 6th. And both of them voted against certifying the election that was part of the actions on January 6th to begin with. Right. So, of course, Pelosi rejects those appointments. And then now McCarthy's all upset and just says none of the Republicans are going to participate, even though Liz Cheney's like, I'm still participating. It's just like such a (laughs) cluster bomb of total BS these last few months of Kevin McCarthy just trying to demolish any legitimate investigations about the January 6th insurrection, right? So that's kind of what's happened literally since May. Take a listen to the first question that was asked to Congressman Jim Banks, one of the Republicans who was appointed and Pelosi rejected. He was on Fox News Sunday today. And Fox News Sunday, I should mention, was actually hosted by Martha McCallum. She's a journalist news anchor on Fox News Sunday more broadly. Tell me if you think this first question is as thorough as it could be. So tell me, you know, I know that you had had conversations with uh, Representative Benny Thompson about what we're going to what was going to be the matters at hand, what would be discussed. What do you think blew up this commission last week? What was the motivation? Well, it's more clear than ever that Nancy Pelosi is not interested in an investigation. She's only interested in a narrative. She claimed that the reason that she booted me from the committee was because of antics on the part of Jim Jordan and I. And in hindsight, what I realize what she means by that now is that we were prepared to ask questions that no one else has asked and demand answers as to why the Capitol was vulnerable to an attack on January 6th. So do you think that is a sufficient enough question to Congressman Banks, Brendan? What do you think blew up this commission last week? What was the motivation was the question? Yeah. No. Right. It's like... It's so enraging because... Why do, you, why do you think that they kicked you off? Right. It centers the conversation on skepticism on the decision of the commission, or really Pelosi, let's be real, on kicking them off, as opposed to like the broader setting in which this special committee is being established to begin with. There's literally zero context of the behaviors of the last few months. Right. Absolutely. And that is just like, if you haven't been paying attention to this, you just think he's like, oh, any Republican who is getting kicked off of a commission or getting kicked off of this committee. And it says nothing of the like his actual comments about it. It's just so enraging. Well, it's also so it's such a micro question, right? Right. And it is it's a question that asks him like, you know, why do you think you are a victim of being kicked off? Right. It's kind of an invitation to complain. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Now, I will say, 
Martha McCallum does include a, a clip from Pelosi saying that she's going to she you know she's open to inviting Adam Kinsinger onto the select committee and she also includes this question which includes a clip from Liz Cheney herself. Take a listen. So your colleague, and I think you used to have a pretty good relationship, Liz Cheney came out swinging against you, calling the things that you had said about the commission disgraceful. Here she is. I am absolutely confident that we will have a nonpartisan investigation, that it will look at the facts, that it will go wherever the facts may lead. Uh, there are three members that the minority leader proposed that the speaker did not object to. Uh, she has objected to two members, uh, and the rhetoric around this from the minority leader and from those two members has been disgraceful. Uh, this must be an investigation that is focused on facts, and the idea that any of this has become politicized uh, is really um, uh, unworthy of the office uh, that we all hold and, and unworthy of our republic. So she, she called some of the things that you said disgraceful with regard to this investigation. What do you say to Liz Cheney? Well, as I as I've already said, uh, Speaker Pelosi didn't just ban me and Jim Jordan from serving on this committee. She also banned the, the very basic questions that we're asking. Why, why was the Capitol vulnerable on that day when three weeks before January 6th, there were intelligence reports that the leadership of the Capitol Police were aware of? So whether it's Speaker Pelosi or Liz Cheney or anyone who sits on this committee, it's, it's clear that those are questions that we should be demanding answers to. There's a couple things that stand out to me in this use of Cheney's clip and McCollum's question and Banks's answer. One, it is kind of a very cutting clip by Liz Cheney, right? Yeah, she clearly yeah. thinks this man has been completely irresponsible in his public service. But there are no specifics. Right. And McCollum doesn't even add any specifics. No. She doesn't say, you know, two months ago you said this, a month ago you said that, yep. that this is what they need to be doing. Like, she doesn't add more so that the listener or the audience understands what those disgraceful comments exactly. were. Exactly. Exactly. And then that gives Banks an opening exactly. to define what that is and say, look, is it disgraceful to ask you know, what was going on with the security at the Capitol then? That's disgraceful. Right. Huh? And the audience is like, hmm, yeah, that doesn't sound disgraceful to me. But we don't know at what least, it is that Liz Cheney was referring to. Banks is deciding that this is the thing he's going to focus exactly. on. And McCallum lets it happen. She lets she she allows so much to be hidden mm -hmm. that he looks great. Yeah. It's so it's not even lazy. It's no. deceitful. It's. Yeah actively deceitful it's actively participating in the narrative he's created right and and it and it weakens cheney's cutting yes criticism or any criticism of banks because it's not direct it's not specific and banks is able to with mccallum's kind of blessing weasel his way out of it totally totally i know that's exactly how i felt too and it made me so icky but what's so icky about it is that it seems on the surface like hey i've got a clip that's very critical of you and i'm asking you to respond to it right like on the surface it's like wow that's such like a damaging clip oh mm -hmm. my gosh like that's gonna be so hard but you're actually not answering anything of deep substance and you're not holding him to mm -hmm. the substance of the clip which is the way he's tried to undermine right an investigation about his, january 6th yeah 
his participation in the situation. It's very sneaky, very gross. Now, Nancy Pelosi was on... Or, you know, we say gross, right? We don't know what the intent was. It could very well just just be lazy. It could be laziness. Then that laziness is gross. Okay, go ahead. Well, Nancy Pelosi was on this week, which I thought was actually a great booking. And right off the gate, George Stephanopoulos asks Nancy Pelosi about this very story. And he includes a couple comments about the previous failed attempts to, you know, to establish a body to, to create an investigation about January 6th. But there's not, even in his way of kind of summarizing everything, there's not a ton of details, but there is something there. Take a listen to how he summarized it all. Madam Speaker, thanks for joining us this morning. And I want to start with uh, the January 6th commission, uh, the investigation that you are you have launched in the House. I know that this came about because the Republicans rejected a bipartisan independent commission, also rejected a Senate commission as well. But your decision to reject Congressman Jim Jordan and Jim Banks from the committee has drawn fire from Republicans. The Freedom Caucus is seeking to depose you as speaker. And Liz Cheney is now the only Republican member of the committee. Are you concerned about the Freedom Caucus threat? And are you confident that the committee's work can be seen as credible if most Republicans won't participate? Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. We have many challenges, and it's uh, my pleasure, honor to discuss them with you. Uh, first of all, no, I'm not concerned about any threat from the Freedom Caucus. We get those every day of the week. Uh, our confidence that we have in the work of our bipartisan uh, committee that we have now, Select Committee, led by Chairman Benny Thompson, bipartisan with the participation of con- a very courageous member of Congress, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, is high. So that last word sounded a little funny. <laughs> and that's Pelosi saying that her confidence is high. Okay, not hot. No, high. So nothing George Stephanopoulos is saying in his first question is inaccurate, but it's just so devoid of the active campaign by certain Republicans to squash any meaningful investigation about January 6th. Yeah, I think that this is a a kind of a textbook example of, I mean, look at what George, the, the question that George asks here begins, he begins by saying, quote, I know that this came about, you know, because the Republicans rejected a bipartisan independent commission also rejected a Senate commission as well, right? So he starts by saying, look, I know that the Republicans are complicit twice in completely torpedoing, in your words, the idea of a bipartisan commission. It's from the Vox article, but sure. Yes. Okay. But he's like, I, here's the, we have to recognize the reality he's, he begins with, right? The reality is Republicans have torpedoed this twice. And then he goes on, but... Your decision has drawn fire from Republicans. Are you concerned about that? Right? That's basically his question. I don't know. I don't know how what what he's really asking here or how he can frame this in a way that seems critical or like a difficult question to Pelosi. But it's almost like him saying, look, we know the reality is one thing, but Republicans are painting a picture or have put you in a position that is, you know, they're being critical of you in this way. So what's your response? And it's like, why do we have to make the Republicans position the terms of the debate, right? right. Because or, or not even just terms of the debate, like 
the center of discussion right. for the audience to know and understand. Right. It's like, why are we pretending that they're being legitimate exactly. when literally you, George, just explained that their complaints are not legitimate because they already threw out the idea of a bipartisan commission. Exactly. And now they're saying, oh, you're being partisan. Well, that's a bunch of BS, clearly. If they reject a bipartisan commission twice, and then, and they, then they get appointed. And then they get appointed and then get and then tank it. And then they say, oh, you're not being bipartisan. It's like, we don't have to pretend. Like you ever had. An intention, right. Any good faith into this process. Right. So this is like, like I said, I think it's a textbook example of pretending that their efforts are in good faith. But at the same time, beginning your question by saying that they're not, you know? Yeah, and, it's and weird. take out like Republicans or Democrats, right? Like just the question framing itself. It's acknowledging a reality that is based in bullshit and then expecting someone to answer a criticism as if it's valid. Right, that's, exactly. That's the ultimate, like regardless of whether, you know, whether you're Democrat or Republican or how you feel about it, it's... If you don't believe the the rules are genuine, then why are you asking like how someone's running up the score? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you know, these are small things, but it just it really made me upset because I was like, this is the behavior, the attempts to kind of like gaslight America about what did or did not happen about January 6th is so irresponsible and enraging to me that all these little ways that the media subtly partakes in that lazy framing mm-hmm. is is really kind of upsetting me it's I've twisted realized. framing it's it's intentionally twisted framing. yeah and it's not i think what was by I mean, republicans not right but for the most part it's you know republicans saying it was you know they're they're literally republicans are saying it it was just a bad protest right oh right that the january 6th event insurrection was a bad protest but the ways in which media and journalists are subtly doing things like this where they're not fully explaining to people the ways and the investigation is being undermined i think is really irresponsible yeah and it's irresponsible for the reality to be described in one sentence and then the next four sentences and the actual question to be about what republicans say the reality is one thousand percent i it's just to finish it like i don't know how journalists are going to deal with this situation, but they've got to be better at it than what we hear in this question. Absolutely. If this is you summarizing, no way, Jose, this is not going to cut it. We're dealing with situations where one group of actors are acting in bad faith and pretending they're acting otherwise, you know? Brendan, what's your something of note that you wanted to discuss today? So going back to kind of your quality moment and by the way we both had quality moments today so that's good your quality moment about what the government should be doing a little more to fight covid and to fight this recent surge of the delta variant so we are in a state right now where we are entering a fourth surge of covid19 driven by those who have refused to get vaccinated a vaccine that has been proven to be safe, a vaccine that has been proven and now is very much available, and a vaccine that is 100% free after thousands upon thousands and thousands of deaths, and yet people continue to reject it. Both of the shows I was covering, State of the Union and Face the Nation, dealt with this issue, but I feel like 
Neither of the hosts, and maybe none of the hosts right now, are asking the really tough questions of what more the government can really be doing to save more lives. And just to remind everybody, there was an interesting statistic that came out over the last week or so, and that is that nearly 9,000 people have died in one state, the state of Texas, between February and now, who were unvaccinated, right? Nearly 9,000 of them. It was something like... When there's a vaccine readily available. Yeah, it was like 48 people were vaccinated of the people, I think it was like 48, who died. And nearly 9,000 who are unvaccinated. These are people who could have gotten vaccinated, right? And most of them would have survived, right? I mean, think about a cemetery of 9,000 dead people. You know, like that's, that's many cemeteries full, you know? I mean, it's just horrible. It's just horrible. And yet we're kind of dancing around these issues and we're assuming that there's not a lot that the government can really do to make a difference. So let's dive into this. Let's begin with the way Jake Tapper framed this issue, which is the top story in State of the Union. We've heard some heartbreaking stories of intensive care unit patients begging for the vaccine as they're about to go on a ventilator, only to be told by health professionals that it's too late. And for some healthcare workers, as well as vaccinated people who are digging out their masks again, patients with those who are not vaccinated is running thin. So it's really interesting. <laughs> Naomi, uh, this is one of the reasons I love doing polylog, and that is you hear something once and you think one thing, and then you hear it again, and you're like, oh, I didn't even get that part of it. So just listening to that now, it occurs to me that probably, I mean, I know this for a fact, there was not a class in high school about vaccines and how they work. Like, maybe it was covered briefly during health class or science class, maybe. But there are probably a lot of people out there who think a vaccine fights COVID. We know that. They tell us that all the time. So I can take that when I get sick and it can help me, right? Like, it's out there. It's ready and I'll get it. I'll take it when I get sick. And it's like, I don't know about you, Naomi, but I haven't heard any educational messaging explaining to people that, like, the vaccine only works before you get sick. Like, yeah, people say it takes some time to go into effect. But it's one thing to say it takes a while to work. And it's another thing to educate people that a vaccine only works before you are sick. It doesn't work after it. That is a therapeutic drug, right? And therapeutics are a different thing. And we don't really have strong therapeutics against COVID-19 right now. But there's probably a lot of people who maybe are holdouts and think, maybe I can take it later, as, as he describes here. Stories of patients who are begging for it and healthcare providers having to tell them it's not going to work, right? Just another communications failure. Yes. I mean, I've heard from other scientists and bio- biologists who have been explaining that. But I hear you and that maybe the CDC hasn't been doing that type of explanation. Yeah. But anyway, on to the main point that he makes, which is patients with those who are not vaccinated is running thin. And we've seen that in a lot of different ways. And in fact, on Face the Nation, John Dickerson had Jerome Adams on the show. And he is the former Surgeon General. And he had a tough message for those who say that personal freedom is their watchword, and that's why they're not taking the vaccine. And good job for Dickerson in kind of like setting up this 
really important discussion point about personal responsibility. Let me ask you about the the governor's. Uh, she said that that people are letting us down. Can we do a, just a brief public service announcement here? A lot of people have talked about the vaccine as individual choice. It's my choice. Nobody else's business. Others who've been vaccinated say, what do I care if people don't get vaccinated? I'm protected. Can you just remind people why it's important beyond just the boundaries of your own body to get vaccinated? Well, I always say to people, it is your choice, but choices come with consequences to you and to other people. The consequences to other people are that you may put my 11-year-old daughter who can't get vaccinated at risk. You may put my wife who is going through cancer therapy at risk or my mother who had a stroke last year in the middle of a pandemic at additional risk, even though both she and my mother are vaccinated. But there's also real harm to you because guess what? Uh, More mitigation is coming, whether it's masking or whether it's closures or whether it's your kids having to return the virtual learning that is coming. And it's coming because this pandemic is spiraling out of control yet again. And it's spiraling out of control because we don't have enough people vaccinated. So get vaccinated because it helps your neighbors, but get vaccinated because it's going to help every single American enjoy the freedoms that we want to return to. I think that was just beautifully said. A great question. John Dickerson saying, look, public service announcements are important. And Jerome Adams just beautifully explaining the situation. Right. Your anti-vaxxers, those who claim that they're holding out on the vaccine due to medical freedoms or whatever insane reason, it's at the risk or at the detriment of their other personal freedoms. Right. And freedoms of people they care about. Absolutely. And and the health of people they care about and the quality of life of the people they care about. And all of it. Yeah. As well as their own. So I, I just felt like that was a really excellent, excellent description. And by the way, this this type of question by Dickerson, I don't know how much this is the case, but it does suggest that there was like a pre-interview. He's like setting him up to deliver an important message. But at the same time, there are governors and political leaders and it feels like sometimes an entire party bending over backwards to make it easier and easier for people to not get the vaccine or not take health measures. And one example of that is Asa Hutchinson, Republican governor of the state of Arkansas, who has set up a situation where not only is there not a mandate for masks right now, but localities can't even put those mandates in place when they feel like it's necessary. Your daily case count is higher now than it was when you first required masks statewide a a year ago. In April, you signed a law that prohibits local or state officials, yourself including, from implementing any new mask mandates. That ban goes into effect this week. Why have a ban on mask mandates when you're having difficulty as as a state getting control of this pandemic? Well, that was the uh, will of the General Assembly. I signed it at that point. uh, We had very low case rates uh, in Arkansas, and uh, people knew exactly what to do. They were capable of making their decisions. 
And then we shifted to the emphasis on vaccination. And I really think it's important not to have the current debate about mask wearing, but to have the current emphasis on getting a vaccine. And so that's the singular focus we have, even though our guidelines continue to say uh, if you're not uh, vaccinated, you should wear a mask. And that is the guideline that we have in place. Uh, but we don't have a mandate because uh, that was uh, uh, held back uh, from the legislature. As you pointed out, I signed that. Uh, and as we get ready for school, I think more people will be looking at that guideline as that's appropriate if you're not vaccinated or you're under 12. I want to play some uh, some of a video posted by Washington Regional Medical Center in Arkansas about the rise in serious cases that they're seeing among unvaccinated young people. <laughs> so two points there. Uh, I need to correct myself. The law doesn't just stop localities from having those mask mandates, but state officials, including the governor himself, it takes the power away. One of the things that's really missing from Jake Tapper's follow up here is, do you regret signing that law? Like Hutchinson frames it as well that, you know, when we wrote that law, that was cases the will were going of the down. assembly. <laughs> okay. I signed it. It's like, well, you didn't have to sign it. And do you regret signing it? Like, I think this is an important, really important misquestion here, because why not ask if he regrets signing the bill? Why did maybe he feel pressured into signing it? Did it seem like there was little risk in it, but now it's come to bite them? I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? Like, what would he say to governors in the same position who might feel the same sort of pressure? Has he, Governor Hutchinson, learned anything about humoring the conspiracy theorists or the opinions of political commentators or the pressure within one's own party that there's actual consequences to those things, to humoring, you know, uh, uh, the legislature when they want to go down this path and literally remove the power to impose public health measures to protect the people that you have sworn to protect. That's a really important line of inquiry. And I'm really disappointed in Jake Tapper for not pursuing that any further. Although he does ask one question, which is, why are you in principle ceding so much to those who fear the vaccine and don't want to get it? But do you worry at all that by not allowing localities to impose a mask mandate when this virus continues to rage like a wildfire, as your own experts say, you are actually ceding control of this virus to the unvaccinated, to the people who ask questions about mind control that you just talked about, instead of giving power and control to the people who are taking this seriously, who are getting vaccinated, but don't want to have vulnerable people like those under 12 or those who have uh, uh, immune system problems uh, infected by those who are just ignoring the science. There's two mandates that are possible. One would be a vaccine man mandate. We're not going to do that because uh, that would even cause a greater reaction of negativity toward the government and that in imposition on freedom. Uh, secondly, would be a mandate for wearing masks. Uh, it is a conservative principle to allow for local control. That is a fair discussion about it, and that's something we're going to have to continue to weigh uh, depending upon uh, vaccination rates and how they proceed between now and school. What I don't understand about Hutchinson in this clip is the concern seems to be based on how people are going to feel about their individual rights 
as opposed to the actual public health emergency. Mm -hmm. Like, right. Where's the urgency on keeping your constituents alive? Yeah, well, I do think, I mean, one of the reasons Hutchinson is on here is to say, you know, he's one of the Republican governors from a state that's doing not very well, who is very vocal and is actually on a tour right now to try, he calls it a listening tour, but it's a tour to promote vaccinations, right? He's working hard. He does want to see people vaccinated. But as he makes clear in this clip, he thinks that the only two options are mandate this or mandate that. And that would be, you know, beyond the pale. We could never do that. Right. I do. I really do appreciate Tapper's question here. I think there's not a lot of creativity in the thinking about different levers that the government can pull to encourage vaccines and to push them and make them easier. Right. I mean, there's a whole book out there called Nudge, which is about making small policy changes that aren't necessarily mandates or requirements, but that make it easier for people to make decisions that are ideally in their better health interest, you know, and one of the classic examples of this is to when someone's checking out at a school lunch counter, you know, the kids at, at school in the cafeteria, rather than putting candy bars near the checkout line, you put, you know, healthier foods. Maybe you put some bananas or apples or whatever. Like you put healthier things in people's way and they have to walk around it to avoid it or walk past it to avoid it rather than walking past something that is unhealthy, right? There, there are nudge related things. You know, another example is, if you're a company, you make it a default that people are automatically enrolled in the 401k program to save for retirement. And they certainly have the ability and have to, you know, to, uh, the ability to not put their money into that, but they have to opt out rather than opt in, kind of encouraging more responsible financial decision making, right? There are things like that all throughout the government that can be done, but it seems like there's a lack of creativity in both the questions and the thinking on these topics. And that's one of my abiding frustrations in this whole segment. There's not deeper questioning of those in power, even when you look at the federal level. For example, take a listen to this question that Jake Tapper had when he was speaking to Anthony Fauci, basically President Biden's top advisor on the coronavirus. The unvaccinated folks are letting us down, the governor says. Former White House advisor Andy Slavitt says, he thinks President Biden needs to get, quote, very aggressive in turning the heat up on unvaccinated people. Do you agree and do you share Governor Ivey's anger? Well, I'm very frustrated. I, I, I generally don't like to get involved in, in, in blaming people because I think that would maybe push them back even more rather than I mean, I could totally understand the governor's frustration. So I don't have any problem with that. She has every right to be frustrated. But what I would really like to see is more and more of the leaders in those areas that are not vaccinating to get out and speak out and encourage people to get vaccinated. Did you get that question? Like, Tapper suggests that the government should, quote unquote, get very aggressive in turning the heat up on vaccinated people. But what does that mean? Right. Right. Like, There's zero specifics of that. No specifics of what that means. And then Tapper's question is, do you share Governor Ivy's anger? Who the hell cares about anger? Fauci is a top advisor to the president. The president has the ability to shape policy, actual decisions, to do actual things. I don't care about Fauci's anger. 
Stop talking about emotions here. This is about policy, right? And, well, strategies. Yeah. Strategies to get people vaccinated. And, like, the way Fauci feels about someone is is not something actionable that people can work on. It's not very relevant, frankly. And then Fauci says, you know, I'd like to see more leaders encourage people to get vaccinated. Well, that's not very creative, is it? And that doesn't really do much because the president, President Biden's already doing that, right? Right. Like he, Tapper lets Fauci come up with what he means by, you know, very aggressive and turning up the heat rather than demanding more of Fauci, more of Biden and asking why they're not doing more. But there were health officials on who did get it right, who did suggest things that the government should do to make a difference. And that is, once again, former Surgeon General Jerome Adams, here he is on Face the Nation, saying this basically unprompted as an answer to another question. You also asked Dr. Gottlieb, I heard, about kids getting vaccinated. Here's what worries me, John. We still have no clear timetable on when we can expect FDA licensure of these vaccines for adults. And a lot of people say that that is still causing their hesitancy, number one. But number two, I can tell you the quickest way to get people vaccinated is through mandates. And we can't have mass mandates. We won't. You're hearing this from the military and from other businesses until you have full licensure of these vaccines. So if you want to get a bunch of people vaccinated really quickly, get these vaccines licensed, and then you'll see the military make it mandatory. You'll see businesses make it mandatory. Excellent point. Something we've been saying for a really long time. Why is this still under emergency use authorization? So happy to see this. Critically important. And the great thing was that immediately... After this great point by Jerome Adams, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo was on the show, an actual Biden cabinet member. So Dickerson had a real chance to ask about businesses mandating the vaccine and what the Biden administration is doing to make that happen. Here, let's play that clip. You said this week, if you're asking me what can we do to get our economy back on track, get vaccinated. Give me your sense. You talk to businesses all the time. What are some specific ways in which I saw that Apple is delaying reopening their their headquarters a month because of Delta? What are some specific ways that it's affecting business? Oh, sorry. Nope. That wasn't the clip of Dickerson asking what the Biden administration is doing to make businesses mandate the vaccine because Dickerson didn't ask that question. He asked this much lamer question that was very much like, hmm, how is this affecting business? Tell me. Uh, What? She's not an expert on business. She is a policymaker in the Biden administration. Ask her a question about the policies of the administration and what they're doing. And this is like throughout the conversation. He treats her like she's like works for CNBC and she's a financial reporter. No, that's not right. It's a huge missed opportunity. So, you know, if a business was asked about making the vaccine mandatory, right? If you said to Apple, you know, why aren't you making the vaccine mandatory? They might say that the vaccine hasn't been fully licensed, as Jerome Adams pointed out, right? But there's another barrier, the lack of an easy way of knowing who is or is not vaccinated. Other countries are trying to deal with this exact same issue. And Face the Nation had a great report on it today by Elizabeth Palmer. Take a listen. The idea of vaccine passports is gaining traction in Europe. Six countries now have some version of them, and France has the strictest rules. There, they'll be necessary to even enter many public places. And that kicked off violent demonstrations in Paris. 
Riot police tussled with protesters on Saturday, which was dramatic, but actually a sideshow because most people have accepted the new rules. In the line for the Eiffel Tower, some showed barcodes, others hard copies, and there was even on-site COVID testing so anyone without a passport could get in too. Wow, what an interesting idea, a vaccine passport. But there were no questions about vaccine passports to the Commerce Secretary just minutes after this report and why the Biden administration isn't working on making it easier for businesses to mandate the vaccine. So once again, lots of great ideas and suggestions and hints of what the government should be doing, but hardly a single question holding the government officials who are on the shows accountable for taking action to put those ideas into practice to save lives. I think to underscore that, what is what makes it even more outrageous is that we've been here before. We've been here before and there weren't strategies in place that we could really go to. There wasn't a vaccine in place. And so we would just go back time and time again to our public health officials and say, what do we do? And they'd say, you know, wear a mask, keep your distance. You know, people know best. We're we're 16, 17 months into this now. Right. You should have a better message. And beyond that, journalists should be having more rigorous questions to our public health officials to say, listen, we've been saying this for a year and there's still 30% of our population that won't get vaccinated. What do you think about mandates by employers with employees of more than 5,000 people? Right. Or if you have a commercial building of blank, you know, offices or whatever it might be. But like, why not investigate the limits and the boundaries of these public health recommendations to understand what can be done better now. Exactly. I mean, ultimately, these aren't just news reports about what's happening in politics. They're meant to hold officials accountable. So on that part, these shows have missed the mark. It's like they're so close, right? It's not like the ideas aren't showing up on the shows. They're there, right? Jerome Adams has them. Elizabeth Palmer's talking about what's happening in Europe. Like... The ideas are there, but they're not asking the questions. They're not expecting them to have the answers. The politicians. Right. right. Yeah. Which is so frustrating. Yeah. Man, a lot of frustrations. Kind of like both of us were on the team do better. Yes. Yeah. If we were having show ratings, they would not be fives. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) This week. But we're not having ratings. What we're doing is we're going into encouraging you to make your dialogue count as always this week and every week we encourage you to do that (laughs) so what is the dialogue challenge this week i guess my dialogue challenge would be what's a topic you're returning to and how can you ask something different this time around Mm, yeah like we've had this conversation before maybe we could ask something different that will stop us from having it a third time exactly (laughs) even though we are in our third surge so maybe a fourth time we should say (gasps) I mean, but it doesn't have to be COVID-related, Absolutely. right? Yeah, it no, could no, be no. anything going on I was just on using that as an example. Yeah. yeah. A worthy dialogue challenge. And we'll be testing that out for sure here. If you like today's show, we would so appreciate if you would rate us on the Apple Podcast or wherever you're getting this podcast. We would so appreciate it. And it's how people find us. Absolutely. And if you have any other direct feedback you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow us on Twitter at polylogcast. I'm at Naomi underscore. And I'm at B Steidel. 
Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.